We thank you so much for the worship team, so faithful every week upon week, providing for us music that we can worship the Lord, and for that, we're very, very grateful. Thankful for all that God has been doing in our congregation, and we're very, very grateful for that. Again, if you're maybe new here, there is a, I don't know what you call it, a cry room right back here if you need to use that. Now we're not talking about you, Kathy, we're talking about like children, you know, <laughs> right back, right back over there, so. Just to give you an idea where we're at, as you know, we've been doing a series, um, we're calling it A Taste of the Psalms, and we've been talking about the fact that in the book of Psalms, it's divided basically into five sections. And so what we've been doing is taking, I've been doing is taking a psalm that seems very, like very kind of grabs the idea of what this psalm is about, and we've done four of them. We've been moving through them. We did talk about the five books of the psalms, and we talked about the fact that it was interesting. You've got five books in the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And it's interesting because then we have what we have in the Psalms is, once again, five books. And we've looked at Psalms, two uh, groups, and what we're at now is we're right at this one here. This is the fourth, the next to the last of the Psalms, and we're going to be fo focusing on that today. So what we'll do, we call this a taste of the Psalms. And before we go any further, let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, we are grateful to be in your presence with your people on this day. We recognize that we have a great Savior and that we had a great need for a Savior. We recognize that you have brought us into relationship with you, not because we're good, but because you're gracious. <laughs> that you saw us in our filth, our stupidity, our anger, our hatred, and yet in your mercy, you would bring your spirit to us that by repentance and faith, we could come and to know you as our Lord, as our Savior, our King and our friend. And so we thank you for the word of God that you've given us. We thank you for the book of Psalms, the way for that book for over 2,000 years that's been such comfort and help to so many people. And Father, as we just do this short series on it, we pray that you would use it in our lives. We know there's people in our congregation that are struggling, some that are suffering. And we pray for them, Father, that you would be with them and help them. We thank you for what you're doing, what you're going to yet do. And we ask that you'd be with us now. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I don't know if you saw this in the news a couple months ago, but there's a story about a guy named Michael Boatwright. Michael Boatwright was an interesting guy. He was found in a hotel room in Palm Springs, California. And he was an um, interesting guy. They found him in a hotel room, and they knew something was wrong with this guy. He didn't know anybody. He didn't know anything. He was confused. They tried to talk to him, and it seemed like garbling. They don't know what he was. They thought maybe he was drunk, but it turned out he wasn't. Uh, and when he finally started talking, he started talking in Swedish, which shows that he must be a really wonderful guy. Because, uh, um, no, not really. Uh, but it turned out that when they finally figured out who this guy was, that he had lived in Sweden years ago. And he had been married for several years and then moved back to America. And then he was just sort of a drifter. They finally contacted some family that said family hadn't seen him for over a decade. And they didn't know what he was up to or what the problem was. Well, it turns out that he had a thing they call it, and I've never heard it before, transient global amnesia, which is a long word of saying you don't remember anything. 
Not just you don't remember a few things, you don't remember anything. And so here's a guy, they say, do you know your name? No. Do you know where you're from? No. And so it was a very, very sad thing. In fact, if you think about it, imagine if suddenly all that you knew about life and stuff was taken away from you. How horrible that would be and how tough it would be to start over again to building names and relationships and people. But what I want to do this morning is talk about a different kind of amnesia, not the kind of real kind that doctors deal with, but spiritual amnesia. Because one of the realities of Christians, it seems like the longer we become a Christian, the more common it is that we start forgetting about who we were, what God has done, and what he yet wants to do into our lives. And so we're going to be looking at this together, and we're going to be turning. If you have your Bible, you might want to turn to Psalm number 105. Psalm number 105, Psalm 105 is a beautiful psalm. A beautiful psalm that describes how God's working in the life of his people. And the passage can be broken down into four simple pieces. The very first portion here that we see is dealing with verses 1 to 6. And it's all about giving praise to the Lord. And, of course, we know in the book of Psalms that's very common. There's basically mostly two kinds of psalms, those that are thanking God and those that are asking God. And this is one of the ones thanking God for he's done for what he's done. So in Psalm chapter uh, 105, the first section on praise, we read it here on the screen. Give thanks to Yahweh, call on his name, proclaim his deeds among the people, sing to him, sing praise to him. Interesting there it says sing to him, sing praise. There are two different words in the Hebrew language, but they're very close. They're basically synonymous. But the point is, People who've experienced God's mercy and his grace, they're going to call out to God. They're going to give thanks to God, to Yahweh, for what he's done, how he's rescued them, and how he's cared for them. And he said, sing to him, sing praise to him, tell all about his wonderful works. In other words, not only do you have something to tell, you've got something to tell. Let them know what God has done for you. And so this first section, 1 to 6, covers that. So we have in verse 3, honor his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek Yahweh rejoice. Verse 4, search for the Lord and for his strength. Seek his face always. And as we want to find the Lord, we want to know him. We want to be able to serve him. Now notice, verse 5 is one of the key words in this little section. It is this word. And it says, if I can get it back here, I hope this moment. No, I don't. But it's number 5 where it says, remember the wonderful words he, works he has done. What we want to talk about and remember in this passage today that we're talking about here is dealing with this idea of remembering. Remembering and not remembering. Not kind of like this guy that Michael Boatwright had, but this thing where we don't forget what God has done. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in our world, it's sort of like a Lord, what have you done for me today kind of deal. It's like, really? Every day we live and experience him because of the fact that he's so gracious. It's by his mercy that we have all that we have. So it says, remember the wonderful works. That phrase, remember, is going to recur several times in the passage. And keep that in mind if you would. Remember the wonderful works he has done. His wonders and the judgments he's pronounced. In other words, not just the things that were good, but the things he had to do in punishing. Verse 6, you offspring of Abraham, his servant, Jacob's descendants, his chosen one. It goes back to the very beginning. When God chose Abram and said, you, I'm going to make you a great nation, and you're going to have babies, and you're going to have nations coming out of you. And their whole question was like, really? Did you ever ask how old we are? It ain't going to happen. 
And, of course, you know the whole story of what happened. God, in his mercy, at a certain time, they did, and they had a child. Not just a child, but then that child had children. And before you know it, you've got Jacob, and you've got 12 tribes, and on and on the story goes. And so he said, listen, you offspring of Abraham, his servant, Jacob's descendants, his chosen one, you need to be worshiping him. So the first part, the first of four, is all about gratitude, thankfulness, giving God the glory for who he is and what he's done. The second section that we have is a little bit longer. It's verses 7 to 11, but it's also a very important section because now the tone changes. It turns away from praise, and it's going to focus a little bit more on a different issue. It turns in, turns in verse 7. It says this, He is the Lord our God. His judgments govern the whole world. Now, verse 8 again, he remembers, once again, a key phrase, he remembers his covenant forever. Now, if we ask, where do you think about the word covenant? Where does it come in? Of course, the one we think of most is what happened when God redeemed his people and he brought them to Mount Sinai, and there they made a covenant with blood, there at Sinai. And it talked about the fact, the fact that they got the oxen and they killed them and they poured the blood into these big basins and they had the people come and they said, here is the covenant I'm going to make with you. If you will do what I ask you to do, I will bless you beyond anything you could ever imagine. And, but if you do not, I'm going to bring judgment upon you. And this is a serious deal. I'm not asking for your life. I definitely don't want child sacrifice. But these bulls who have now, they didn't give their life, but we took their life, is representing the covenant that you have made. And it sounds lousy, but I mean, all the people are gathered around, and the priests are there, and they got bulls full of blood, and they're flinging it all over the people. It's not a happy kind of thought, but it's saying, this is how serious this is. These big bulls died. They representatively took what you should have done in your sin. But we'll let them take it. But in other words, they made this covenant. And of course, the people, I mean, I mean, if you were there that day, do you think you'd ever forget it? Oh, no. That was quite a day when they did that. And so the covenant is a very, very important part. And so it says, he's the Lord our God. His judgments govern the whole world. He remembers his covenant forever. The irony of that passage is, the very next verse, I mean, we're going to, it talks about he keeps it forever. When he does that, and Moses goes up in the mountain and is talking to him and getting the Ten Commandments and the 613 laws, he comes down. It's not quite even like the 40 days in the middle, up there. And what does he get? He finds out his brother has gotten all the silver and gold, and they put it together, and they made what? A golden calf. It's like, oy vey, that's one thing you don't do. I told you you're not going to do that. You should have no other gods before me. And yet that's exactly what happens. And so it's like saying, all right, God is faithful to his covenant, but you guys, what is wrong with you? I'm only gone 40 days, and you've already broken the covenant. I remember he talks about how Moses breaks this, the, 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 the tablets, and he has to get new tablets made for them. And it goes to that. And so he said he remembers his covenant. And he's going, you don't remember, do you? Okay? The covenant he made with Abraham that he swore to Isaac and he confirmed to Jacob. There they are, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great patriarchs. And it's saying, what do we know about this? What we know is that God was faithful to Abraham. He was faithful to Isaac. He's faithful to Jacob. And Jacob, of course, with the 12 tribes. And then we have that phrase again. 
and to Israel, now to the nation, the 12 tribes spreading out among the nations, I will give the land of Canaan to you as your inherited portion. Of course, if I think if I was, you know, let's say Abraham or Jacob at that time, I'd say, yeah, you know, I don't think they're just going to give us this land. The Canaanites happen to like this land a lot, and they're not in any way just going to go up and say, hey, could we have all your land, please? It's not going to happen. But in the passage, it makes the point. God's covenant, his promise was, I will give the land of Canaan to you as your inherited portion. And it's like, really? It's going to have to be something pretty dramatic for that to happen. He goes, you know, that's the business I'm in. Okay, I can handle that. Look at verse 12. When they were few in number, very few indeed, and temporary residents in Canaan, wandering from nation to nation, from one king to another, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their behalf. Verse 15, do not touch my anointed ones or harm my prophets. Let's look at that a little closer. When they were few in number, very few indeed. Think about it. Think about all the nations that surrounded where Abraham lived. You got the Moabites, Canaanites, all these Bites people all around their area. And here they are, just this family. All they've got is a promise. But it's the person they got the promise from that makes all the difference. And it's the promise that God has made. And he said, you know, you were just temporary residents of Canaan, wandering from nation to nation, from one king to another. But, said, even in the midst of this, I had my hand on you. I never turned away from you. He allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their behalf. Now think about your Old Testament knowledge. Who would be the kings that maybe Abraham rebuked? Well, one would probably be Pharaoh. Remember when it turns out that turned out this is not my, this is my wife kind of deal. The other would be Abimelech, which is another one of the two that could be there. It's probably the ones he's referring to. In verse 15. God said, do not touch my anointed ones. That word anointed, by the way, is the word Mashiach. We get, we get it as the word Messiah. Here it's not using in the sense of Messiah. It's doing the idea of anointed, one who's poured oil on and had, put their hands upon him. As this is a special person. So this is, a, per, this is a, my, a special person, my anointed ones. Don't harm my prophets. Now, it's hard to think of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob as being prophets, because we all think of prophecy, we got prophets, we think of prophecy. This is not that kind of prophecy. It's more the idea of having a special relationship, of being ones that God has chosen to work with. And so he's telling these people, this is what God has done for us. Even these people, even though they're small, they rebuke kings on their behalf. So as we go on in this passage of verse 16, we see what's interesting. In verse 16, there's an interesting shift. He called down famine against the land and destroyed the entire food supply. The question is, who is he? The he in the context is clearly God. In other words, it's saying in the midst of this, when God has been working with them, he says to them, okay, he said, he called down famine against the land and destroyed the entire food supply. In other words, God is saying, what it's saying is, God is the one who brought a devastating devastating famine to the people. Now, in this passage, what you'll see, even just this short psalm, it's very clear about the providence of God. Things don't just happen. God is on the throne. And because of that, God decided, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to bring an intense famine upon this area where all these people live. And I have a purpose. 
And the people involved will not know what that purpose is, at least until later. But God is at work. And so he said he called down famine against the land. He destroyed the entire food supply. Verse 17, he had sent a man ahead of them. And we're all going, really? Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Now think about this. At that moment, like here we read this. We're reading the story back there about what happened. Did Joseph have any idea that God had a wonderful plan to use him to bring salvation to his family? Not a bit. All he knew is that he was mistreated by his own brothers. They got, they got sent you know, into prison. He was you know, lied to. The woman said that he was involved with her. He was not. Uh, he remember the talk about the baker there who had the dream and the cupbearer who had the dream. And please remember me when you know you get out or one of you is going to die. But the living one, would you remind them who I am? And no, they didn't remember him. And there at the bottom, God works in an incredible way. And the psalm tells us about it. It says, he sent a man ahead of him, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with shackles. His neck was put in an iron collar. By the way, the Bible doesn't say that. The, whoever the psalmist is is writing, well, that's what they do, doesn't it? Yeah, it is. Okay, so that's close enough. Okay, verse 19. Until the time his um, prediction came true, the word of the Lord tested him. Thing. That idea of the predict, it's easy for you to say, okay? But his point is here, he said, finally, what happened is God did work. And so it says, until the word of the Lord tested him. Did Joseph know that this was a test? No, he just knew that he'd had, boy, you talk about having bad luck, you know, that's terrible luck. Things have been terrible for him. But there was no luck involved in any of this. What there is and what there was was a providential God who cared for his people. And most of the time, sometimes you see God working, you say, yeah, I get it. But a lot of times, like, I don't get it. But the question is, are you willing to trust when you don't understand? And so what it says there, until that time of the, uh, it came true, the word of the Lord tested him. Verse 20, the king sent for him. Remember, he's coming now out of, out of the prison in Egypt. And released him. The rulers of people set him free. He made him master of his household, ruler over his possessions, binding his officials at will and instructing his elders. It's like, what a thing. This guy went from prison to being the top dog in Egypt. Now, did he know that? And at this point, it's like, well, maybe God is at work. Could it be that maybe God didn't forget me all that long time in the prison? And so the point was saying, look what God has done and how he has worked. Now we come, by the way, Leslie Allen is a white word biblical commentary. He wrote an interesting thing I thought. He said, talking about Jake, uh, Joseph, he said, in the bitter fortunes of Joseph, he was preparing the way for eventual blessing, not only for him, but for his kin. Joseph's experience was that of Israel in miniature. The path to glory lay through suffering. That's a very good phrase. The path to glory lay through suffering. And so Joseph didn't understand it. But if you look through the working of God through his people in Old Testament and New Testament, that's in this, this is the pattern you see. God takes his people through difficult times. He takes them to times that are suffering, when there's sorrow, when there's hurt and loss, treachery, all kinds of things, and say, will you trust me in the midst of this? 
Will you be willing to believe that I'm bigger than all the issues and the problems that you're dealing with? And that thing that says where the path to glory lay through suffering, you can understand why this song was important for the early church. Where early people say, you know, this is like our story now. Our path to following God as believers in Jesus Christ is just like Jesus had to suffer before he came into his glory. We too are going to have to suffer before we come into that glory as well. Let's go back to our passage. The, last, the third section right here, and now it changes direction. Now it talks about the fact, okay, they're in, they're in the land of Ham, they call it, the land of Egypt. And what it has now, it's saying now is the time that God's going to bring his people out of there. And it's time for judgment upon a stiff-necked Pharaoh who refused to let his people go. Verse 23, then Israel, uh, also same name for Jacob. It looks confusing because they use as two, di two different names for the same person in verse 23. Then Israel, that is Jacob, went to Egypt. Jacob lived as a foreigner in the land of Ham. This has nothing with food. Okay, David, okay, this is the place. Verse 24, the Lord made his people very fruitful. Remember the fact that they couldn't believe that they were having so many children so fast. And he made them more numerous than their foes, which, of course, made them nervous. There's more of them than there are of us. And it says, verse 25, whose hearts he turned to hate his people and to deal deceptively with his service. Now, this is a hard verse. Look at it again. I'll pick it up the 24. The Lord made his people very fruitful. He made them more numerous than their foes, whose hearts, talking about their foes, he turned to hate his people. In other words, God worked, again, providentially, so these people would hate them. And to deal deceptively with his servants. In other words, God said, this, I'm, we're setting, he doesn't say this, but God is preparing them for what God is going to do. So when the time comes for them to go, they're going to be more than happy to lift God's people out of their bondage. And so it says, verse 26, he sent Moses a servant, an Aaron whom he, chose, or he had chosen. It's interesting. As beautiful as the Psalms are, and as so many of them are, um, it's interesting that Moses only appears five times in the book of Psalms. I don't know why, but that seems odd. Anyways, he sent Moses a servant, an Aaron whom he had chosen. They performed miraculous signs among them. Remember about taking down the, throwing the staff on the ground and becoming a snake? And wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness, and it became dark. Remember, that it was so dark, people couldn't see their way around. Again, God's, and it's interesting here, he's talking about clearly about the plagues, the 10 plagues in Israel. He doesn't talk about all of them. He just picks certain ones, and they're not even in the order. He's very selective in what he chooses. So they performed his miraculous signs among them, wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness, became dark, for they didn't defy, did, for, for did they not defy his commands? He told them, let the people go. And the king said, no, I'm not. So he turned their water into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land was overrun with frogs, even in the royal chambers. He spoke, and insects came, gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain. In other words, they wanted rain, but he gave them hail instead, and lightning throughout their land. He struck their vines and fig trees. He shattered the trees of their territory. He spoke, and locusts came, young locusts without number. They devoured all the vegetation of the land. They consumed all the produce of the land. And then the major one, of course, the last and the most important, verse 36, he struck all the firstborn in their land, all their first progeny, the death of the first son. The angel of death came, 
to the houses that did not have the blood along the road, I mean, along the side of their home. And so you've got this interesting passage of God bringing judgment upon the nation of Egypt. And so what we see in this next section coming up, I think what we're going to see as we come in this section, yeah, is the very last one. This is verses 37 to 45. 37 to 45. And here the theme is more on God's redemption of his people. And so as we look at in this next passage, it says verse 37, then he brought Israel out with silver and gold. It was such a neat passage that he brought them out. God personally was involved in them to take them through the waters so they could walk on the dry land, that he could bring them out. It's interesting, by the way, since he brought out Israel with silver and gold. It's right around this time, there's starting to be a change, but it used to be that silver was considered the most precious material there was, followed by gold. And then a little bit later, it started, went the other way around. But it was interesting. He brought Israel out with silver and gold, and no one among his tribes stumbled. It sounds like kind of a strange verse. Like, yeah, it's... Yeah, that's great. It's good to know that. But I mean, the point is, in this whole long journey that they were going to go to take him to Mount Sinai, where they'd make the covenant, it's like they didn't fall. There wasn't, a, there wasn't, they didn't break down. We might think of it as a car group coming, and none of their cars broke on the way to, the, to, to make their covenant, okay? And notice this next interesting phrase for 38. Egypt was glad when they left, for the dread of Israel had fallen on them. Like, get me, get them out of here. And of course, as we read from the passage, as, as they were leaving, they're knocking on doors, say, hey, do you have any pots and pans you might want to give? Yeah, take it all. You know, take the juice squeezer with you. You know, take anything you want, because we want just you to leave, and as fast as you can. And then he talks about the way that there they're in the wilderness. How are they going to live in the wilderness? The wilderness is awful. It's got scorpions. It's dangerous. Those ites people are all around us. And it said, he spread a cloud as a covering. He gave fire to light up the night. Once again, you know, during the nighttime, if they had to travel, they could follow by following the flame. Daytime, they could follow the cloud. Verse 40, remember they started crying? We're going to die out here. I'm so hungry. I'm going to die. Verse 40, well, they asked, and he brought quail. And he satisfied them, this beautiful phrase, with bread from heaven. We see this occurring a number of times in the Old Testament. He gave them bread from heaven. It was like a white pasty thing that landed down and they all said in Hebrew, mana, which in Hebrew means, what is it? I said, I don't know. What do you want to call it? Let's call it mana. What is it? So that's what it is. It's mana, we call it. So he brought quail and satisfied them with mana from heaven. He opened a rock. Remember that story? We're dying out here. There's no water. You brought us out here, Moses, to die. Why can't we go back to Egypt? And God tells Moses, I just want you to hit this rock. Of course, Moses blew it at that time. This happened twice, and the one time he blew it. But the other time he did it right, and water came out. And this famous phrase, it flowed like a stream in the desert. There's a lot of people to get water from. And here is the idea of God's protection, God's provision, getting his people to take them where he wants them to go, where they'll make a covenant with him forever. Verse 42, why? For he remembered his holy promise to Abraham, his servant. After all these years, God had never forgotten his promise. Many people had, but not him. For he remembered his holy promise that he made to Abraham the servant. He brought his people out with rejoicing, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. He gave them the land of the nations, and they inherited what other peoples had worked for. 
In other words, you didn't get these in Deuteronomy. Uh, Moses talks about this. You're getting orchards that you didn't plant. You're getting vineyards that you had nothing to do with. I'm giving this all of you. You're my chosen people. I love you. And I'm giving this. All I'm asking is keep the covenant. I keep the covenant. You don't keep the covenant. When you don't keep the covenant, it brings judgment upon you. And so he's saying, would you follow me in light of all that I've done to you? And then verse 45 has an interesting ending. All this happened so they might keep his statutes and obey his instructions. Which is interesting here because basically saying, you know, all this thing I've told you about, is there a purpose, a goal? Saying, yeah, there's a purpose. I want you to understand why it's important for you to keep this, co- keep this covenant with me. I've given you these laws. I've given you the opportunity to follow these laws. And he's saying you need to hear what's going on. Now, this passage is so crucially important in terms of the Psalms is because it deals with issues that are so significant to what we're working with today. Because if you think about it, when you come to these passages, it's dealing basically with the faithfulness of God. Is God really faithful? I mean, can you really trust him? And, of course, here's where Israel got to find that out. There's a passage here that I think I have... Uh, from A.W. Pink, many of you remember his writings, not personally, I mean, he's been dead for a long time, but his writings. But here's what he writes about God's faithfulness. He said, everything about God is great, vast, incomparable. He never forgets, never fails, never falters, never forfeits, never forfeits his word. To every declaration of promise or prophecy, the Lord has exactly adhered. Every engagement of covenant or threatening, he'll make good. It's a great phrase saying, you know, there's one thing that's solid that's never going to change, and that is the promise that God has made to his people. People are going to fail you, husbands, wives, friends, family, children, co-workers. The one person that you know that is the rock that where you can stand is God. He has never failed his people. He never will. This passage is so incredible and so beautiful. Because for one, it tells us about how faithfulness it is, but it also deals with obedience. It's saying, in light of all that I've done for you, can you not do what I ask you to do? Of course, we're going to read this in the New Testament again. We're going to see, for example, like in 1 John, we're talking about Jesus talking, and I mean, John talking, and, and talking about, if you love me, where Jesus says, keep my commandments. Now, again, these are not obedience so that you can get saved, but saying, this is what it's like to live in a life and relationship with me. But the other thing, really, though, maybe the third thing to think about this passage is this. This passage is interesting because it's sometimes called an historical psalm. It's sometimes called a narrative psalm. And we call it that way because ultimately it's telling a story. And if you think about it, as Christians, we are people who have made a commitment to the great story, the ultimate story, that begins with creation and goes all the way to recreation. And we call that, maybe you want to use the word a meta-narrative. It's maybe been overused. You may want to just call it a story, a story psalm. That's fine. But the thing is, we're all part of a story. 
We talk about how God in creation created the world. Then he put man and woman. Then there were people. Then, of course, there's the tragedy of the flood. Then God beginning again with the new earth and going all through that. And he talks about how God finally brought a person, a king who was going to rule. And we read about the kings. And we go through all this. And you know, we go through Israel's just, you know, turning away from God. And we go through the exile and the suffering they had at the hands of the Babylonians. And yet he brings them back again, a small group group, but they're there and they're alive and God brings them there and they bring it to the point that there's a man by the name of Jesus. And they think he's just some kind of squirrely guy who thinks he's got maybe powers and stuff and they kill him. But they can't stop him because he rises from the dead on the third day. And there are these guys that had been his 11, well, 12, but 11 at this point, guys who, who can't get it, their hearts are broken, they can't figure it all out. And all of a sudden, here's Jesus standing in the room with them. And their world just changed. They no longer were following a dead Messiah. They were following a living Messiah who was king. And that story continues on when the book of Acts, and it talks about there, you have, you know, you've got Peter who blew it so badly when he, before the Lord, I mean, before the Lord, and he told the slave girl, I don't know anything about him, I don't know him. Yeah, you really are, you're from Galilee, I know your accent, I don't know what you're talking about. Now he's out there in front of thousands of people telling them about Jesus is the Messiah. And that story continues on, and we have now the door where God shows, opens it with the, to Peter, where, the, where, the, where comes down here this, all these different kinds of foods, non-kosher foods, told three times to eat it, go ahead and eat it, go ahead and eat it. Why? Because I've opened up the door of salvation to all, not just to the Jews. And if you will come through repentance, faith, and come to him, you'll have eternal life forever. And that story goes on and starts with the then story of the church and how the church grows in spite of all its struggles, in spite of all of its failures, that God will always have his people. And he's going to take his people, and we, may go, we have to go through difficult, sorrowful, horrible times at the end, but God is going to win. When people say, can you take the book of Revelation and you know, can, can still, can, can bring it down to just something so small, the whole point is God wins. You don't have to worry about what the ending of the movie is. The interest it is going to be Christ wins. And we are right in that story. If you're a Christian today, you're in that story. We're in part of that story of walking with the Lord, looking back to what he's done, looking ahead to the day when Jesus Christ comes, not as a lamb anymore, but he's coming as king, as king, and lord of lords with a sword upon his hand to bring judgment upon a world turned away from him. And then God will bring the new heavens and the new earth where we'll be with him forever. And he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes and we'll be with him forever. That is one of the, that's not just a good story. That is the ultimate story that's the story you're part of. When I was a kid, there was an old song that we sang. I don't know if people sing it anymore. But the name of the song, if I remember it correctly, and if I can find it, um, it goes, I'm sorry for my singing. We've a story to tell to the nations. Anybody remember that? Oh, good. I don't feel so bad about it. You know, it's really not great a song. Basically, at the end, it's kind of a post-millennial, we're all going to bring in the kingdom. But the first verse is great, okay? We have a story to tell to the nations. The story of a God who would send his own son to die for people who hate him. Sometimes it's hard enough to love the people you love, let alone the people that hate you. 
And Jesus sent his own son to die for people that hated him and who gave them eternal life if they would turn to him. That is the ultimate story. And that psalm gives us in a snapshot of what God has done and points us to where we're going. Lord, we thank you for this great psalm. We thank you for what you've done and how you continue to work in our lives. We ask, Father, that you remind us again that you're always faithful to your covenant. Help us to be faithful to the covenants we've made to you and to others. We pray, Father, that you would continue your good work in us. Help us and prepare us, Lord, as we sing, as we get ready to come to the table, where once again the major theme is remember. Remember the covenant that you have made with your people. Help us now as we sing. Amen.